Uh, hop over to Genesis chapter 20. We're making our way through uh, Genesis. We finished last time in Sodom and Gomorrah. Before that, Abraham had three visitors, three mysterious visitors. The first 12 uh, chapters of Genesis, or first 11 rather, are really about the formation of the world. Then the rest has to do with this guy, Abraham, and his family. And, uh, and Abraham's family has no shortage of problems or issues or dysfunction. Uh, and his marriage also, as we'll see, as we'll continue to see, has no shortage of these things. Do you guys remember that song? Maybe you sang it in um, kids ministry. Uh, deep down in my heart. You guys ever sing that song? Like, I want to be more faithful deep down in my heart. Then that one? Said deep, deep, said down, down, said deep down in my heart. Hey, yes. You guys still got it. Haven't lost a step. The title of my lesson today is Deep Down in My Heart. There she is. Deep down in my heart. I have uh, three points today. I don't always do a three-point lesson, but for those of you who uh, went to church in the 90s, I did that for you. Uh, we have three points today. Uh, three points. First point is, oh, and I got, a, I got a disclaimer. Please get your pens out now. Get your paper ready. Do the little hand thing. I apologize in advance for this one. If you're a typer for notes, use your phone. Uh, it's going to be on the podcast, so if you need to listen to it later, but there's going to be a flurry today. So... Uh, Please keep your arms and legs inside the train at all times, and uh, we should be okay. But I have three points with 14 sub-points. No, I'm just kidding. Um, my first point is the sum of his actions. Genesis chapter 20, we'll start. Now, we've just seen Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Uh, Abraham begged for Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, God, if there's even 10 righteous people, will you spare it? God says, of course. He, uh, the angels go down there to inspect the situation closer. Uh, there, are, there are no, maybe, maybe Lot is the only righteous, but it seems like there are no righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. The just God that he is brings about uh, consequences to that city. Um, but we see that even though Lot is spared, uh, his family has still very much the imprint of Sodom upon them. Uh, they're very uh, sexually deviant. They're deceitful. They lie. His, Lot's family... Just because they've been pulled out of Sodom does not mean Sodom has been pulled out of them. And they, uh, we see that his whole family, because of the decision to go live in a society where things were going to be easier and more uh, comfortable, his family uh, is never heard from again in the book of Genesis um, in this ominous, ominous ending. But we get to go back to his, his uncle, Abraham, and maybe things will be better for Abraham. Maybe things will be better along the way. Here's hoping. Chapter 20, verse 1. It says, now Abraham moved on from there to the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. Oh, no. I thought it was going to be a good chapter. A lot of you remember that Abraham says the exact same thing in chapter 12 when he goes to Egypt and has to, uh, he's there with Pharaoh in order to protect himself. He says that his wife is his sister. Uh, then, then Abilamech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Uh, verse 3. But God came to Abilamech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. 
Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abilamech summoned all his officials, and when he told them what had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abilamech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you so that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not have been done. One version says, what you have done to me is unconscionable. Verse 10 says, and Abilamech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. She became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me everywhere we go. Save me. He is my brother. Then Abilamech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abilamech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels. Abilamech's still a little salty there. He says, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels, not your husband. I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abilamech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abilamech's household from conceiving because of, Abraham, because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Wow. Uh, this is a, once again in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is very much, uh, like one commentator says, it's very much happy face, sad face. It's very much, yes, are you kidding me? Awesome, oh, are you, again? Yes, oh no. Like it's very much, which also, by the way, is our lives. Uh, every day, probably for us is, great day, are you kidding, again? I thought we were through this. And, and here in Genesis 20, uh, Abraham does the same stinking thing he did in chapter 12. He blows it big time. And you think after a couple chapters of some, some really awesome moments for Abraham, some maturity. And in a lot of ways, if you think about it, uh, when Abraham receives the covenant from God, in a lot of ways, it's this moment of uh, God walking with him. You could call it salvation. In a lot of ways, post-covenant Abraham is starting to look a little bit like pre-covenant Abraham. That after his time with God, even in this great time where he's praying for his enemies in Sodom, he's, he's doing the right thing. He's hospitable. He's this great man of action. We have this thing where he actually goes back to sinning the way he did before. And it's not just any old sin. It's a sin he happens to be quite known for, which is lying. Um, and I wanted to talk this morning about that very struggle for us, because I think a lot of us, when we come to Christ or we come to know Jesus, certain things are easy to kind of get rid of and certain things are not. Uh, these things are usually habitual. They're usually habits. They're usually deeply ingrained sins. And uh, whether you become a Christian at, at 12 or at uh, 70, uh, we all have these deeply ingrained sins. And I think it's vastly important. We're going to we're going to. 
launch into the New Testament a lot today because I think that's a principle that we see a lot in the church today and in Christianity today. Because the main point of this passage seems to be that here is this awesome guy, the father, the father Abraham, the father of not just Judaism, Christianity, the father of the future children of God. Here he is again doing something horrible. And why is it so horrible? I think we understand why. Once again, there's a theme in the last eight chapters of, of the book of Genesis where men keep putting uh, or keep taking advantage of vulnerable women and, and they keep putting others uh, before themselves and they keep saying, you know what? I don't, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Uh, I want to take care of myself, right. right? Lot offers up his daughters. Abraham offers up Sarah. Uh, for all the good that's going on, we still see a very selfish Abraham and not just a selfish one, but one who lies and not just one who lies, but one who digs deeper when he's caught. Yeah. Did you notice how he responded? Abilamech is by no means Pharaoh. Pharaoh, when he finds out that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is actually, you know, or, yeah, is actually his wife, not his sister. Pharaoh responds like you kind of would imagine. I mean, not, not in a righteous way at all. Abilamech is different. He tells his whole palace guard and they're all deeply grieved. They're not Jewish. They're not Christian. They don't have this. Why would they be deeply grieved about this possibility of adultery? Well, because all ancient faiths actually condemned adultery. They all saw it as an affront to deity. They all saw it as one of the most horrible things you could do it was a sin against your creator was to go outside the marriage. Okay, so even Abilamech's family and his palace and his guards are taken aback by this. And then Abraham responds in an interesting way, and it's not unlike how you and I might respond if caught in a half-truth. Right. Abilamech says, what you've done is unconscionable. Why did you do this to me? Abraham's first like, well, I, I, I showed up here and I realized that you, you all couldn't be godly people. So I had to compromise. I had to change the strategy. I had to mix it up. So it's not really my fault. <laughs> it's kind of your fault because, you know, you guys really, I could tell. I could just, by look, I could just look at you. Yeah. I could just tell that this wasn't a godly place. So, right. And for, for all of us, right, our circumstances dictating our actions. I could just tell that my work wasn't a really godly place. So I kind of just fit in. Or I could tell that my school or I could tell that my friends didn't like this kind of behavior. So I just... And so he's kind of making excuses for it. And then he says, well, if you think about it, she is my sister in a way. She's the daughter of my. Now, we don't have any other evidence of that in the Bible. So we don't know if Abraham's that's a complete lie or if it's true. Either way, either case doesn't make him look very good. If he's telling the truth, he's told his wife everywhere we go. Tell them you're my sister. Basically, that's how you can show that you love me. That's like. Manipulative marriage 101 right there. This is how you, if you really love me, you'd do this. If you really love me, you'd do that, yeah. right? It's, it's manipulation. Putting somebody else, try to get them to do what you want them to do to make you feel a little better. And here, and, and Sarah is this, this character in the story. She continues to do this. And she, she, we can tell from a couple chapters ago when she laughs at God that she's a, a hopeless woman, that she's lost a lot of hope. And she sort of just consigned or resigned herself to this life. And it's really a depressing chapter. It really is. At a moment after Sodom and Gomorrah, where you go, it can't get much worse than that. We go, ah, even Abraham, even Abraham can't do the right thing. And I, even me personally, when I read the book of Genesis, especially, I really want these characters to do well. I want them to do the right thing. Because then I want to go, ah, you know what? I will be like Abraham. When I read this, I go, what, what do I, what do we do? What do I do? What do I take from this? Where is God's voice in this? What do we take from this? 
uh, a famous quote is that a, a, a person is the sum of their actions. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the paradigm or the worldview that Abraham has and that a lot of the people in the Old Testament have. Because a lot of people in the Old Testament do uh, have habitual sin. They go back to doing the same thing you thought that was over. You thought it was done. You thought that they could, you know, after Noah is saved with his family, he has this really awful situation with his family where his sons, you know, and the nakedness and all that. It's like right after the flood, Jacob is consistently, remember Rebecca gets her son Jacob to basically lie and deceive their father. I mean, the whole book is like this deceit and these lies being passed down from generation to generation. And I guess the question we have for us all today is, is this true? Is Abraham the sum of all his actions, all the things he does? And are we, is a man the sum of his actions or a woman the sum of her actions? There's a great verse in 2 Peter 2, and it says, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And I used to love this passage because I thought, man, what has mastered me? Abraham can't get out of this lying thing. He can do so many incredible things, but this one sin seems to have hold of his heart. And this sin gives birth to many other sins. But this sin of lying, why is he lying? Why not trust in God? Why not be honest? And I think for a lot of us, we all have really one or two core sins that everything kind of relates back to. And we're really good at confessing what happened or we're, maybe we're good at telling people what happened, but not why it happened or not why we did what we did or what was our thinking behind it? What was our heart behind it? And I appreciate the boss sharing about the, the, the Christmas incident, you know, Christmas fiasco of 1990. Um, but I think that there's something because I know as a man, I can easily try to skirt responsibility by being like, yeah, I was wrong. I blew it. You're right. I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. I'll fix it. I got it. I won't do it again. But why did you do it? I won't do it again. But, but what were you thinking when you did it? I, it's not going to happen again. You know, I just went, but why? Because it's going to happen again. Because you can't just, uh, Emerson said that for all, for a thousand people hacking at the branches of sin, there's only one hacking at the root. We're all constantly just hacking away branches, but can we get deep down in our hearts? And that's a tough one. It's not easy. Richard Foster says that the world today does not need more intellectual people or more successful people. The world needs more deep people. The world doesn't need more successful people, more intellectual people, smarter people. The world needs more deep people. The sum of his actions. And uh, I think Abraham does something that we, any of us would do. You know, the world says that we need to guard our hearts. We need to protect ourselves in another way of saying it. Protect yourself. Don't worry about other people. Worry about yourself. Take care of yourself. Don't don't try to tell anybody else what to do. Worry about yourself. And in a lot of ways, what we're thinking and what we're feeling, we we bottle it up. We bury it deep down in our hearts, right? We bury it away. Maybe no one will find it. Put it away. And Abraham, when he enters Gerar, it's very simple. He's afraid. Either he's afraid or he's just so used to this sin. He's not afraid. He's just so used to it. He's just so used to lying that he just does it. So it's one of two options. Either he's like, I I can't, I I know I should do the right thing, but I can't. I gotta lie. It's worth it. I'll be okay. Or he thinks, it's just so, he doesn't think at all. It's just so part of him. And sometimes our decisions 
uh, are so ingrained in us, we don't think about why we did it or, or what we were thinking or what we were feeling. And we don't even know why. And we just become creatures of habit in this way. You know, and I quoted a book last week um, by Yuval Harari, um, and uh, that, that the quote was about community. Uh, and he also says in his book, and this is a, a non-Christian, uh, he's a biologist, but he says that it, it's, it's very scary that we live in a world, and this one cut me really deep, but it, he said we, we live in a world where feelings are the authority. Yes. And what you're feeling is the authority. And I feel that that's, that's the way we, we are. Even as I noticed that a few years ago as we would get, go on campus and share our faith. It used to be very much what is true or what is accurate or what is right. That doesn't matter so much anymore. What matters is how it makes me feel. And we hear this in the way we talk to each other. You shouldn't make me, you shouldn't judge me. You're judgy. You shouldn't make me feel bad. You shouldn't make me feel. If you make me feel anything I don't want to feel, then I'm going to kick you out of my life. You're unhealthy for me. Block. You're not. Your way of thinking, that is so toxic. Block. Put it out. If you, I need to just, and so we have, it's really interesting that our feelings are our authority. And we teach that to our kids. Where the kid, and kids feel, you ever met a kid? They feel different every day. But what are you feeling? What are you feeling? Now it's important to know, it's important to know how you feel, but are the feelings your authority? I'm only going to do something if I feel, if I feel good about it, if it feels comfortable, if it feels right. I'm only going to live, live out something about, regarding my feelings. And maybe that's why when Jesus meets the, the, um, the army cadet, right, in, in Luke 7, he goes, praise God, someone who understands authority. I've not found faith in all of, all of Israel. Because he finally finds somebody who's like, it's the right thing to do. I'll do it. He's like, thank you so much. <laughs> Jesus is so encouraged by this guy. You know, he says this amazing thing. But we get to a place where our feelings control us. Our feelings enslave us. A person is a slave to whatever has mastered them. And in a lot of cases, what's mastered us is our feelings and the way we think. Hop over to Ephesians chapter 4. I used to, and still, I'm better at it now because of just like sheer training and repetition. But as a young man, I hated that question. How are you feeling? I, I hated it. I didn't know the answer. Uh, I just usually said what my dad said. Fine. Feeling fine. You okay? I'm fine. You excited? I'm fine. Fine. That's just my, that was my coverall, right? No, but how you feeling? Because um, I didn't know, or if I went down deep, it was scary. And if I went down deep, I realized just how dark it really was and just how many decisions were truly made really about me. And I began to see through the Bible studies and through as a young Christian that my core sin is selfishness. If I pursued a girl romantically, it was almost never because I really honored her. It was because I wanted to beat the other guy. It was because I wanted to prove I could. It was because I wanted to make her laugh. It was because I wanted to be successful. Success was my idol. It was competition. It was winning. Even ministry was winning. It was, it was converting the most people. It was being the smartest, knowing the most verses. In me was this core sin of selfishness. And that selfishness drove my arrogance. It drove my impurity. Because guess what happened when I was disrespected in public? I went straight to sexual impurity. Guess what happened when I didn't do it well on a test? I failed. I had not succeeded. I went straight to uh, video games. I went to these things that could medicate 
this desire to, 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 to be successful. And that really just was selfishness. And it was a selfishness to be successful in and of my own self. And I'm grateful uh, for the exposure of that. And that. But that still can very much be part of me. I can make decisions even today that are very just robotic because that, that's a, it's a habitual sin. It's a deep sin. It's deep down in my heart. And we've got to be able to go deep if we're going to be able to live as, as lights in the world today. And that's an encouraging thing. It's a challenging thing. And so how do we do it? Ephesians 4 is going to walk us through how to do that. Ephesians 4.17. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Here it is in the futility of their thinking. I love that. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do because all the stuff they do is really bad. Don't do that stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. He says, no, you know what's wrong with the Gentiles? The way they think. What's going on in their head, in their heart. That's the, and then, you know what? It's futile. You know what futile means? It's empty. It's worthless. You know what's wrong with Gentiles? It's the way they think. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You know, it's, it's easy, it's tempting in the world today to just like, especially in evangelism, Try to find somebody who already kind of loves God. Bring them to the church so that they can just kind of conform to all the things we do. But that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to convert hearts. We're trying to help people change the way they think. And that's that's not usually something that we can do on our own. (laughs) We need help with that. But I think sometimes we get worn out because we think, I can't do that. Well, of course you can't. Right? We need a little help if we're going to help people change the way they think. That's a deep thing. Right. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual greediness. Some versions say a continual lust for more. They're full of greed. What does that mean? It means it never ends. These desires for these things, whatever your habitual sin is, and I want to ask you this morning to consider this. What is your habitual sin? What do you find that you do over, and we have good habits, but I want to, you know, and there's some good things you can do, but what about the habits that are not so good? What about the habits that tend to hurt people? And maybe you've even felt this. Why does this keep happening? Why do people keep talking to me about this? Everyone's just got a big problem with me. Well, maybe it ain't them. Maybe. It's more logical to think it's you. Okay, but what is this pattern in your life? What is this habit? And where is it coming from? Because you're trying to medicate it certain ways. I looked up a uh, secular way to deal with habit forming. And it's interesting. The first one basically says you have to realize your habits are coming from somewhere. The second one is you can't just remove a habit. You have to replace it. And I began to think of this, this passage. And I was like, it's interesting. You know, when you have this habit, it's, you have this continual lust for more. It's never going to be enough. Maybe the habit is uh, flirting with someone because it makes you feel good. Maybe that flirting could also be uh, making people laugh, or that flirting could also be, or it could be sexual. But it's just, you're always never going to be enough. You're going to have a continual lust for more. Maybe it's beating people and other things. Maybe it's being successful in the world today. Maybe it's being smart enough. Maybe it's having the best kids, or maybe it's, it's whatever, it's your appearance. This, these habitual sins, uh, they're coming from somewhere, and they can't be satiated 
by being, uh, you can't just remove them. And I, I think it was interesting they said in the, in the website, you got to replace it, right? Um, but in the secular world, they don't care what you replace it with, right? Just instead of drinking, smoke or something. I don't, you know, like replace these things. Instead of a cigarette, have an e-cigarette. Instead of a, and instead of having sex, just flirt, it's not as bad. And, but God says, then you got to replace it with something. Actually, don't replace it with something. Replace it with someone. That's what Paul says here. Paul says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That's the difference. Is Jesus someone who makes you feel successful? Is Jesus from where you get your, your affection? or your, Is Jesus where you find intimacy? Is Jesus where you... Is, yet we have to replace these things with Jesus. Next verse says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. There it is again. To be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, I think we have a problem today in the church, and I think that problem is we get baptized, we get excited, and then we just kind of just, mm, I guess life is just going to be hard. I guess we're all, and even sometimes, and I think I've preached this at times, but like we have this internal battle within us, right? And we can think, well, we have no real, we're just going to, some days are wins and some days are losses, and we just sort of have to resign ourselves to that fact. But that is not the perspective of the authors of the New Testament. It is that if you mess up, it is an aberration. It is random. It is rare. Because we are not trying to live on our own accord, on our own strength anymore. We are living through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit transforms the way we think. And if you can change the way you think, don't worry about the actions. You can change your feelings. Oh, my goodness. I just, I just saw a postmodern psychologist drive by and yell at me. If you can change your feelings, if you can really have feelings that are in Christ, is it possible? Can we do this? Because most of the time, I think we don't feel like we can. We show up to D groups bummed out. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's awful. Everything's oh, awful. Yeah, we show up to church bummed out. Everything is. We show up to things so burdened and worried and anxious. And it, it doesn't seem exciting to be a Christian. It's just, oh, I didn't do enough. And, I, uh, and the schedule and the, and, the, uh, and the stink and everything is. So is it possible? Are we just here to kind of. What's the point? Of all, are we just Abraham? Are we just doomed to that life? We just doomed to a life of maybe we'll be good, maybe we'll be bad, depending on how we feel that morning. Is that a life we're passing on to our children? Slavery to emotion, slavery to feelings. Verse twenty nine says, "Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body." A couple things that Ephesians says to do. Okay, number one is Ephesians says, confessing your thinking. This whole passage is littered with words about uh, thinking and understanding and attitude. And I want to ask you, when's the last time you confessed your thinking? We confess when things that are bad happen. And even if they do happen, we can be defensive about it. But how how about confessing our thinking? I didn't actually talk to the girl at the coffee shop, but she did smile at me. And I did smile back, and I thought about going over and talking to her, right? I thought about it. I didn't. I thought about it. 
And yeah, I got rid of it immediately, and yeah, I didn't think about it again. But for that moment, I saw, I wanted to confess that to you, that that thought did fly through my mind. I did want to confess my attitude. I didn't say anything, I didn't, but I had an attitude recently. We want to confess those things with each other, but also with God. We can conf- we've got to confess these things to God. And we've got to get deeper in both our head and our heart. Confessing the way we, th- we think. Because what does confession do? Confession owns up to, I need help. Confession is innately a humble thing. Uh, the second thing he does, you've got to confess your thinking. But you also got to be community clinging. He says, he says you've got to confess these things. But by the way, watch out how you treat one another. Because we're all members of one body. 1 Corinthians 5 says, a little leaven works throughout the whole batch of dough. One person's thinking, you might think, that doesn't affect anybody. It does. One person's attitude. Yeah. One, one person's feelings, they affect other people. But we've got to cling to other people. We've got we to meet up together. Yeah. And I know our schedules yeah. are busy, but it doesn't have to be for five hours a day, for moments, little touchstone moments. Yeah. Leave a Vox, leave a voicemail, write a letter in the mail, the dearest brother in Christ. <laughs> I, however you want to do it. Some of you are married to disciples. Some of you have children that are disciples. There's always moments to be able to just confess your thinking and be open and be honest and cling to that community. Because here's the thing. When you get around people, when I'm alone, it's, it is hard to confess my thinking. I'll be honest. It's, it's hard. When I happen to be sitting with Will Schaefer or Josh Riggs at coffee on Saturday morning at 7 a.m., it's much easier to share my thinking because I'm there and I'm with the community. When I'm at I Was Hungry, when I'm playing basketball with the guys, when I'm on a prayer walk with Landon or Steven, when I'm, you know what I mean? When you're with people, you have opportunity. But when you have these little moments, it does end up going quite a long way to have this opportunity to come closer together. Um, What is the real difference between this church and the other churches in Charlottesville? What is the real difference? they both have, they have salvation doctrine. If you went there, they'd probably say, we'll, we'll teach you the Bible. Yes, we have great resources. You can get very involved. What's the real difference? And anybody who studies the Bible, I believe, finds out really quick because they're either highly offended or very excited, is the amount of invasive community. Yeah. We're going to be invasive. Oh, yes, we are. We are a body. It would be ridiculous for a hand to be cut off and the other part stand, hope he does okay. Hope he makes it down there. No, you say, no, if he's not connected to the heart, he's not going to make it. Right. We've got to pull that piece back in. We've got to cling to the community. We've got to be together. And we're a small church, but I believe that a small group, and so did actually God believes this as well, that 10 righteous people could have saved Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. That, that was enough. Yeah. If there were just 10 righteous people in Sodom, God would have said, well, they're going to be okay. There's 10 righteous people there. We have more than 10 righteous people in Harrisonburg. Okay, we have a few more in Charlottesville. We can change these communities. If we change the way we think and the way we can talk and expose the way we feel. The second point is the sum of our interactions. Because if we just make it about the sum of our actions, we're all going to leave here feeling really guilty. Because we are going to fail. We are. You are. You've met me. You'll know that I, I'll, we'll blow it. We will. We'll mess up. 
We're not going to be perfect. That's not the point of all this. And I think even as you read Genesis, hopefully you feel this. I feel it. Like there's got to be something better coming along at some point. Like this, is this the plan? And you can see a Bilamech and you can see Abraham wrestling with it. Like, God, you're a righteous God, right? Like, are you going to kill Sodom if there's, if there's a few righteous people there? And even Abilamech in his prayer, God, you're a righteous God, right? Like, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm innocent. Yeah. Like, they're wrestling with this idea of a just God. Mm. Of, is he going to kill us? Does God love us? Is he, when is enough enough? When is God going to say, that's it? You're out of here. You're done. You've sinned over and over again. I am tired of you. I am sick of you. I've given you every opportunity. You are going to hell. Your life is going to be ruined. You're going to punishment upon punishment. You are done. And all of us can feel the insecurity of that. Yeah. Does God love us? Does God really care about us? And is he really going to love us when he knows our hearts? Wow, yeah. But our lives are not the sum of our actions, it's the sum of our interactions with people. Interactions, not with just people, but our, our lives are the sum of interactions with God. Going to God and confessing your thinking. Going to God and confessing your feeling. We've got to get deeper, yeah. church, if we're going to change. We've got to get vulnerable. We've got to get deep. And by the way, if you're really deep with God, if you're deep with a person and they don't respond well, it's okay. If you're not deep with God and you're only getting deep with people and someone doesn't give you the answer you wanted or is maybe a little bit unkind, it destroys you. You fly off the handle, you leave the church, you tell 10 people about it, you gossip. But if you have a deep vulnerability with God, you go, hey man, they they couldn't take it, but God can take it. Here you go, God. Here you go. But some of our interactions with people, yes, but also with God. Mm-hmm. And remember back in the prayer, I love this. Abilamech is, he goes, well, first of all, God's like, uh, I'm going to kill you. And then Abilamech's like, hold on a second, God. Would you really slaughter an innocent nation? I had done this with a clear conscience and innocent hands. Since the beginning of time, it has bothered us when someone innocent dies. I think just this past week, the security guard at Parkland High School was convicted for not intervening in the shooting. Uh, and, and the innocence that could have been saved, it bothers us. We have, it's written in our law. We're going to punish people who, who, who can't, if they could save the innocent, but can't or don't or won't, we punish them. Because it bothers us. It's always bothered us. We, we are very much okay with a guilty person dying. But an innocent person, that, that's highly offensive and it bothers us to a deeper core. And God says, no, I'm not going to kill an innocent man today. But I will. I will allow an innocent man to die one day. Because this was, this was from the get-go, as God chooses Abraham to be his, his image bearer on earth, you can see that there's this constant pressure in the Old Testament um, to live up to the law. And the law was needed at that time. I think the law was good. I don't think, but time passed to where even Paul writes, the letter of the law became death to those who were trying to follow it. Basically, if you're just trying to do the right thing, you will die. Don't just focus on the hand. Don't just focus on what's actually happening. But you got to get deeper. Now, I do want to make it clear. We get, we get weird with this one. I think getting deeper does not mean only doing something if you feel like doing it. Getting deeper means taking captive every thought and making it obedient to Christ. We get deeper and we say, well, I can't give communion tomorrow because I just feel too guilty. Okay, take that thought, make it captive, and do communion tomorrow. I can't, I can't serve. I'm no good. I'm a sinner. You're right. Take those feelings and thoughts, make them captive to Christ, and you're going to serve tomorrow. That's what a Christian does. That's what, that's what it is to be Christ. That's what it is to be a light on earth. If Christ only went to the cross when he felt like it, 
We don't even want to consider that. My final point is the product of his passion. So number one, the sum of his actions. Number two, the sum of our interactions. Number three, the product of his passion. An innocent. Would you really kill an innocent person? It reminds me of Mark 15. Then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? They, they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked why. What has he done wrong? Even Pilate is like, I don't get it. What's, what did he do? They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Because he wanted to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after he had Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. That day when an innocent died, that was a day when God was able to say, you know what? I love you enough and I accept you enough to be perfectly righteous and to be perfectly loving. And if you can't understand that, I want to show you. Here's my son. He lived every day right. He died for us. And it's weird, the idea of a sacrifice. We don't have sacrifices anymore, but the idea of a sacrifice is important. Um, and Isaiah puts it well uh, in his, in, uh, there it is, the second one. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well because of his wounds we have been healed. That's weird. Wounds don't heal people. Wounds hurt people. But I love he says, wounds have healed you. His wounds have brought you healing. I want you to leave today with this idea of healing. Confess your sins to one another so that you can pray for one another and feel more guilty. No. So you can be healed. God wants his people to be healed. Confession brings about healing. Prayer for each other brings about healing. Christ's wounds brought about healing. You know, if it wasn't enough that Jesus was a sacrifice for us, he was actually an example for us. And for every moment you feel like, I can't do this, just remember, Jesus was confessing his thinking as well. Jesus was community clinging as well. He took Peter, James, and John, the community, with him and became very troubled and distressed. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus was confessing how he felt. He was confessing his thinking. Later on, he says, take this cup away from me. He's confessing. He's actually with the community, but he's actually confessing his thinking. Are we connected and are we confessing? This passage today is is one that by itself is a bummer. But in the light of the New Testament and in the, 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 the gospel, we get to see just how bad things could be without Jesus. But we get to go, think about why this is perfect. Every day, instead of feeling guilty that you blew it that day, that you are not the sum of your actions. You are not the sum of your actions. You are not the sum of all the things you have or haven't done. You're the sum of his actions. You're the sum of interaction. You're you're not defined by your your deeds. You're not defined by even your feelings. Can I get an amen to that? You are not defined by your feelings. You are not defined by your thoughts. The world doesn't need more intellectual people. The world needs deep people. God, what we're going to do on earth is how we're going to help people is they're going to see that we're not just going to get away with uh, uh, doing or doing right or not doing right, but actually getting deep, talking about our hearts, talking about our feelings. Are you more guilty or grateful this morning? 
When you see that Jesus has died for you, when you see that by his wounds you have been healed, most people would feel grateful, but sometimes it makes us feel guilty. And I want to encourage you, if this morning you feel guilty, I want you to go home today and I want you to take that to God. Why do you feel guilty this morning? What is it? Why? And walk that through. Journal it out. Go through, why do I feel guilty? What went through my mind in that sermon? What went through my heart? You know, this is an incredible, incredible church with amazing people who are serving and sacrificing, reaching our special goal, serving all the time, heading up I Was Hungry, heading up Laurels, uh, reaching out to people, being there for each other, praying for each other, bringing meals to each other. We're a church that serves and we're a church that fellowships. But I think if we have a weakness as a church, we're not very deep. We've got to get deeper. We've got to know why we do what we do. And we've got to go there. We've got to go there. And in a lot of ways, everything else is easier. Yeah. Getting deep is tough. It is to, get, to go there. But if we confess that, the great thing about humility is it's infectious. Yeah. When a brother wants to share his heart with me, I never think, oh, what, a weaker, what a weak guy. I always think, I got something to say. Can I go next? Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I feel the same. Yeah. Have you ever felt this? We need that with each other because the world's going to beat us every day, beat us up every day out there. We've got to build each other up every day in here. Healing from habitual sin comes from deep, vulnerable interactions with God and one another. That's where healing comes from. We're going to replace the habit, but not with another habit. We're going to replace the habit with Jesus. And if we replace the plant with, if you transplant a plant, right? If you take the plant out of the ground and put the right root in, the actions will follow. The actions will follow. So I want to encourage you this morning. Are you guilty or are you grateful? If you feel guilty, go to God with that. If you feel grateful, let that empower you to be able to live this week. Not like Abraham, not like Abilamech, not like Isaac, not like Jacob, but like Jesus. And even if you fail and even if you mess up and even if you struggle, even if your actions are not there, even if you blow it, you can say, by his wounds, I have been healed. Amen. And to God be the glory. Amen.